Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Snufflin. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Our Bracket on the Boat. Uh, this week we're talking about Jaws, which I assume people know, and Ghost Ship, which I assume people also know for different reasons. From 1975 and 2002, respectively. Um, Jaws, the like, classic that changed cinema forever, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that and Star Wars kind of established the modern-day Hollywood business model. Really? It's a really big, really enjoyable, very broadly appealing movie in the summer. Make some sequels, some of which are good. <laughs> At some point, blow things up. Blowing things up is almost always a bonus. Speaking of which, it's important not to lose momentum on the Black Lives Matter movement. Don't let that happen. We talked about it more last time. Again, links in the bio. Mm. Thankfully, we don't have to touch on those issues directly in this episode. Mm-hmm. At least not too much. There might be a little bit in Ghost Ship that we have to talk about. A bit, but they're not severe themes. No. But we also get to talk about jobs before that anyway, so let's start there. Speaking of severe themes that are relevant to the modern day, pandemic response and the failure of elected officials to act quickly and decisively. We can't escape 2020. We really can't. So what happens in Jaws if people haven't seen it? I'm not going to lie, it is difficult to wrap my head around someone who hasn't seen Jaws, although my wife is one of those people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it might be one of those things where it is so big that people kind of just assume that they have it in their brains even if they haven't seen it directly. Mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah, but for those of you who are unaware, I'm trying very hard not to judge you. Martin Brody is beginning his first summer as the new police chief of the resort community Amity Island. But when a local woman's remains wash ashore and the medical examiner rules it as a shark attack, his job becomes much more complicated. Initially, Brody attempts to close the beaches, but is overruled by Mayor Larry Vaughn over concerns that will ruin the town's tourism economy. His hands tied, the beaches reopen, and there's another attack. This one on a crowded beach in broad daylight. The victim, a young boy. The grieving mother puts a $3,000 bounty on the shark that killed her son, drawing in local shark hunter Quint and every good old boy in the Northeast. While the mayor holds a town meeting to convince the public that things are under control. In all the shark hunting chaos, an oceanographer, Matt Hooper, arrives to consult with Chief Brody and take care of the shark. Some of the shark hunters come back with a tiger shark, but Hooper is skeptical that it's large enough to be the one causing the attacks. Hooper and Brody find another victim while searching for the shark and realize it's it's a great white. They hire Quint to help them kill it, and three of them depart on Quint's vessel, the Orca. They sail out to the deeps and play cat and mouse with the shark, attaching barrels to the fish with harpoons to prevent it from submerging. But Quint's obsession causes repeated damage to the boat. Hooper attempts to drug the shark from his shark cage, but he drops the spear gun, and the shark destroys the cage, forcing him to flee and hide underwater. The Orca then begins taking on water, and the shark kills Quint. Brody clambers up what's left of the mast and shoves an air tank in the fish's mouth. Just as he's running out of boat to cling to, he shoots the tank, causing it to explode and turning the shark into a fountain of blood. Hooper surfaces, and he and Brody swim back to the island. While I think the pop culture is, like, guys hunting sharks, I I think the very subtle character bits, the very quiet moments, are not as talked about. Yeah, like, I was rewatching it, and I forget, the first half of this movie is all this, like, tense drama, and it's, a lot of it's driven by interpersonal conflict. The shark is just kind of this outside force that's bringing it all to the surface. Mm -hmm. There's like a slasher vibe, but then everybody reacting in a like rational and emotionally complicated way as opposed to kind of the foolish antics of any given slasher. Yeah, it's like one part monster movie, one part disaster movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really good spot for that movie to sit. 
it allows you to add a little bit of personality onto this natural disaster, mm -hmm. which makes it a little bit more compelling. Yeah. At the risk of sounding like what I'm saying is the real monster was man. It's not just boats going out looking for sharks ad nauseum, which would get boring pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that we don't really know the exact nature of what's going on because of because we're spending our time on the surface plays up some of the the stressors. Like I like that. For a little bit, we, we don't actually know if there is another shark out there. If Maybe this tiger shark is just the thing, and Hooper's overreacting. Mm -hmm. And he even admits it's such. He's like, No, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. I just, I want to be sure. You want to be sure. We all want to be sure, okay? Mm -hmm. I think another thing that ratchets up the tension is we don't see the shark mm -hmm. for a very long time. We get our first glimpse of it, the technically fourth attack on 4th of July. Even when they're playing cat and mouse with it, the barrels, yes, they have a in-narrative explanation, but they're mostly there to keep the shark hidden, but give the audience information about where it is. Which is masterful, honestly. Mm -hmm. It gives us a lot of like cutaways to like the underwater, which even with the best budget would still be kind of just like, it's a shark, it's there. We do get a few like underwater scenes, mm -hmm. and they're okay, but they're not the greatest. Yeah, I think they are fine. For how old this movie is, the effects have held up very respectably. Yeah, it's 45 years old, and mm -hmm. that shark still looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. There are jump scares that still work. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> there was at one point where you, you, you screamed. <laughs> shush, shush. It's a scary movie. It is. Uh, I mean, I remember watching this as a child and being afraid to go into my parents' pool. <laughs> okay, okay. Man, we are, forgive me, just being very surface level. There's so much to unpack here. Like, my notes are full. Like, where do we want to go? I mean, I think starting off, we should talk about characters. Do you want to start with Brody and the mayor? I think talking about Quinn is going to be its own fun whole thing. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with Brody and the mayor. Brody is a recent transplant to Amity Isle. He's, he's not an islander. When do I get to become an islander? Ellen, never, never. You're not born here, you're not an islander. Maybe That's it. As the locals would say. I'm not sure if they actually spell it out, but from the context clues, I believe that he's uh, from New York. I'm pretty sure that's what was said at one point. Um, he mentions how it's much safer here than New York. Your family's going to be totally happy. And I can respect a guy who moved away from the big city to find somewhere safe for his kids. That's, I think there's, you know, conversations to be had about policing and the big city and urbanality and all that jazz, but... Yeah. There's also the complication of this is back in 75 when crime rates were actually rising. Right. So he's you know, adjusting to this new life. He also hates the water, but is now living on an island. Mm -hmm. We never actually get that explored why he hates the water. I think if someone were to tackle this th uh, this film again, I think that would probably be a more integral part of that character. And I don't necessarily mind that it's not here. Brody doesn't have to be a dynamic character that gets over his fear of the water. Right. And also, I think it just it makes sense that he's not from around here, and water is so omnipresent on the island, but such a non-issue in New York-ish. You can live in New York and not have to worry about the water as much. And the water is a very untamed thing. Like, the, the sea is more powerful than, than any man can, whatever, yeah. So, I get how Rhodey, who seems to want, like, stability and peace and things not be complicated, mm -hmm. wouldn't deal well with this, like, yeah. vast and incomprehensible force. Yeah. We see him get in and get this information about, hey, there's this missing woman, we need you to check it out. And he keeps getting 
bombarded with all of this insignificant bullshit that people expect him to deal with. It's one step away from, hey, my cat's stuck up a tree. Yeah, it's a town full of Karens. Which puts him in a very fun position where he's a city cop who's trying to solve this the, the city way, and it is actually a city-style problem, but no one realizes that yet. Mm-hmm. Like, when he starts off, like, okay, get information from the last person who saw the girl. The body happens to just, like, be on the beach. They, they find it. Has the medical examiner look at it. Shark attack. Okay, gotta close down all the beaches. And he's doing everything right, and then he gets stalled out by the mayor. It's actually a very chilling scene. It's all one long take as we're on this pontoon going out slowly across the water pontoon, raft, whatever. It's it's a ferry, barge, I guess. Yeah, barge. Bar- but he, he's going out specifically because the local Boy Scouts are doing their mile swim. He's like, uh, we need to get you out of the water. And then right before the barge takes off, the mayor's car pulls up and he and like his goon squad all pull out and effectively like, uh, no, you're not doing this. And the medical examiner has changed his tune. And the medical examiner's like, oh, I guess I was wrong. And it's, they don't linger on it. It's, we don't get like a reaction of like Brody realizing that this guy's obviously lying. It's just, it's there and it's both out in the open, but also deeply subtle in, in the way that you wouldn't know unless you were there for every moment of it, how clearly alive that is. It is this deep level corruption and like self-centeredness of the mayor. Mm-hmm. His whole thing is that if the beach is closed down, then they will have no money and the town relies on that. If you can't, deal with not having your cash come in for a whole year, you're probably not doing a very good job of this, Mayor. Mm-hmm. Like, you gotta have at least some stuff saved up. And this is even before, like, Reaganomics comes into the picture, which, like, destroyed infrastructure mm-hmm. because of slashing of spending. So, yeah, no excuse. <laughs> yep. He's uh, spending a lot of money on just really nice outfits, which are admittedly very good. And at every single moment where it would be reasonable for him to change his mind and adjust how he's handling the situation, he just keeps doubling down until the 4th of July attack. Mm-hmm. Where it now becomes so terrible that there's no way to not address it. Because, like, the beaches were packed, there was a news crew there, his own children were on the beach, the shark was mere feet away from attacking Brody's son. Mm-hmm. So, again, we don't see much of the shark, but we see a lot of really great reaction shots. There's this wonderful scene where the camera is, you know, sitting on the water, watching this woman react in horror to the shark coming closer as everybody else around her is having fun, and she's too much in shock to say anything. Mm-hmm. And that facial acting is so excellent. Mm-hmm. There's also this amazing thing that the film does for the second attack. It kind of, not even introduces, but just points attention at a number of these background characters. There's this fat woman who is in the water. There's a man with his dog. There's a kid. The camera keeps showing them and focusing on them. So, you know, like they're going to be important and it's setting up like, okay, one of these people is going to be the next victim, but you have no idea who. Mm -hmm. And at one point, the man loses track of his dog, and he's, like, shouting for him. He's like, oh, no, they got the dog. And then it's a complete fake-out, and the shark attack is against the kid. Wow, they went there. Mm-hmm. We don't really see the kid getting attacked or screaming for help. There's splashing, and he's kind of flailing about, and then all of a sudden, the water turns red. Mm-hmm. And then the raft that he was playing on is punctured and washes up on shore with reddish-pink water. <sighs> I keep wanting to say they're borrowing from the slasher genre, but they predate so much of it that it's, it's more like this, every slasher is trying to be Jaws, but with a man. The reach that this film has 
and how much influence it has had on everything that has come after is ridiculous. Like we've talked about this on the podcast before, but this time period in filmmaking, like the, the new Hollywood movement changed a lot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel new to us because this is just how things are edited now, but it, the use of editing to both conceal and also reveal is really impressive. Mm-hmm. This is shot on film, and it, I love the colors in this. It's very it's very beautiful to look at, and, and it has this coherent color palette, but still feels very bright and summery while also having a certain like dourness in the air. Mm-hmm. It's like it's just slightly more cloudy than you think it should be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we talked about... Brody and the mayor. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the second shark attack, which then brings in our two other main characters. Mm-hmm. We have local professional shark hunter Quint, and we also have Matt Hooper, who is an oceanographer that the chief brought in to consult. And Matt Hooper is um, every movie scientist ever. Well, no, sorry, he's he's every realistic movie scientist ever. He's a little bit more pulpy. Mm-hmm. He's kind of this like action scientist. Sure. Knowing what I know about Steven Spielberg and his love of like those pulp stories and Jaws kind of being a uh, love letter to the B horror films that he grew up watching, it makes a lot of sense why Matt Hooper is the way he is. Like he comes for money, like he can buy all the neat gadgets and whatnot, and he doesn't have to worry about funding because he can just fund himself and he's completely willing to go in and take the risks himself like it's very pulp action scientists type of character but brought down to more realistic levels also this is like richard dreyfus here prolific actor you've probably seen him in something he like he is old now and looks nothing like this and it took me a while i'm like oh there i see it i could see his face in in that beard (laughs) it's hiding in there he has he a very great 70s beard. <laughs> I also really like the character. He's very amiable. There's a kind of pleasant quality to him. I feel like I would also want to go study things with him. Yeah, like he's got this great sarcasm. Mm-hmm. You're going to be the only rational man left on this island after I leave tomorrow. Which contracts well with Brody's kind of withdrawn melancholy. There's definitely this, a little bit of smarminess to him. Like he's kind of a yuppie, but the film doesn't make you hate him for that. Yeah. He is the smartest person in the room for most of the film and he knows it and he does a reasonable job of not being insufferable because of it. There's a very good bit where the shark is actively attacking them. He's like, Why don't you please go to the end of the pulpit? What for? I need to have something in the foreground to give it some scale. Foreground my ass. As someone who does photography for work, uh, relatable, big mood. <laughs> I would also do that. Contrasting with Hooper, we have Quint. <laughs> God. Oh, Quint. Quint is Captain Ahab. Quint is Captain Ahab. He gives all these wonderful, over-the-top speeches. Y'all know me. You know how I earn a living. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't gonna be easy. Bad fish. Not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cots. This shark... Swallow you whole. Shaking. Tenderizing. Down you go. Which I, which I love. Uh, we don't really have over-the-top speeches in movies anymore. That's what blockbusters are missing. He doesn't like, we'll see his bones full of them. And like, yes, good, thank you. His monologues are fantastic. Like, his introduction in the community meeting, like, scratching on the chalkboard. <laughs> and energy. Like, it is so fantastic. It's iconic. I couldn't help but like quote along with it as it was coming. Like as soon as the the head, the tail, the whole damn thing line came up, I like yeah, yeah. 
This character could very easily have been too much, but something about uh, his performance does just a good job of feeling like a man who is too big for the world, but not beyond the confines of it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like He's a living legend. We learn more about why at some point, so I, yeah. I get why he's like this, TM. But. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like he, he has a tragic backstory that he expounds on over drinks uh, on the Orca while they're all three of them are out, and that scene is fantastic. I love that scene at night. Mm-hmm. It's so varied, but all of the pieces work together. Like, you have Hooper and Quint comparing battle scars, literally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, they're all kind of getting drunk, and then Quint goes off on this deep backstory about why he hunts sharks. Mm -hmm. He's drunk enough that they have unlocked his tragic backstory. Yeah. And then just, like, start drunkenly singing together. <laughs> And it feels exactly like the nights that, you know, you stay up late drinking with friends. Like, it's so authentic. Mm -hmm. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of uh, Mr. Miyagi getting drunk on the anniversary of his wife's death. Yes! Like, we didn't strictly need it for the film to work, but because it's there, it makes everything so much deeper and richer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that is an excellent comparison. Both those scenes are fantastic. And I like that we start off with a kind of classic rivalry between Quint and Hooper, but as that scene is progressing, they're becoming friends, they're like bonding, and it's actually kind of sweet. It's it's charming. Yeah, before that scene, we actually have a lot of this like antagonism between them, between like, you know, Hooper with like all this newfangled equipment and in science, whereas Quint is like all the old school know-how and tradition, and they butt heads quite a bit. Especially when they are like loading up to go on this trip, and you can see what Quint is bringing versus what Hooper's bringing. Mm -hmm. Were Quint on land, he would do that thing where he like just picks up the the dirt, smells it, like ah yes, our quarry is twenty five miles that way. <laughs> I am very glad that Quint dies. Like I, I mean, not not that I don't like him as a character, but I think it makes sense that both he and the shark need to be destroyed in this journey. That fits with what we know about them as people. Yeah, I mean, he's also very clearly supposed to be an Ahab analog, so of course he's going to die because of his hubris. Yeah. He smashes the radio when Brody tries to call for help, and that honestly never gets explained. Like, he never explains why he did it. Brody's just like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> His kind of signature theme is uh, Spanish ladies, and I like that it gets used as an instrumental during the, like, you know, bombastic, exciting parts. Mm -hmm. That was a good choice. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. Well, with Quint bidding adieu to the Spanish women, I think we should also bid adieu to Jaws and move over to our other film this week. Ghost Ship. Ghost Ship, I think, is like a B-tier, like, bad movie that the internet talks about. In terms of, like, bad movie circles, not in terms of, like, the quality of the movie. We'll get to that in a second. But mm -hmm. I went in having not seen it, but, like, kind of excited for what, what was supposed to be a very bad movie. And I, I'm not sure it really delivered there. Mm. So what happens is we have a salvage crew who are in port celebrating their most recent salvage and talking about how glad they are to have a rich full life ahead of them when uh, Jack Ferriman, a Arctic researcher guy, shows up and is like, hey, I found this boat, probably adrift, you should go salvage it, but I want to cut and I'm going to come with you. After some light debate, they board up, they go find this boat, it's huge, it's not just some boat, it's um, the Antonia Graza, a legendary ship that went missing a long time ago. They, they come aboard and it's... This beautiful set that's all rusted and sad, and one by one they are picked off by ghosts, because boy howdy, this place is full of ghosts, and 
Maureen Epps, who is the one-third owner of this whole venture, bonds with Katie Harwood, a pure soul who didn't uh, die corrupted with the rest of them, and so she's able to relate just a little bit more knowledge, and Epps manages to realize that Jack Fetterman was uh, actually evil this whole time. He reveals that he's just collecting souls for management. Uh, people downstairs want that shipment, and he doesn't want to disappoint, but she manages to blow him up by shooting her bomb uh, with a harpoon, and the whole ship goes up including Ferriman, and uh, all the souls go to heaven because he didn't get quite enough people. She's taken back to land and is um, like, yes, good, I saved the day. But then the butt rock starts, and <laughs> Jack Ferriman walks by with these chests of gold, knowing that their story will continue. It's funny that you say butt rock because that's literally a song by Mudvayne. <laughs> And the term mudvane refers to the digestive tract of fish. Yeah. It's... <laughs> the, the music choices of this are truly sensational. I mean, I do kind of love it. It, it reminds me of my, my early teen years. <laughs> um, I did leave out the best scene of the movie, which is unfortunately the first one, where a bunch of people are on a dance floor and a wire that someone rigged goes through and cuts them all in half. Yeah, like, it's amazing. We later find out, like, the whole, the crew is sabotaging and, like, killing everyone be- because of Ferryman and his influence. They rescued chests of gold from another ship, and now they all want it. But it's this, like, beautiful betrayal pileup, like it's the end of Solo, a Star Wars story. Yeah, but yeah, like, the movie starts off with 40 people getting bisected by this wire, and... I love over-the-top gore in horror films, and this delivers. It is so ridiculous and cheesy and awesome. <laughs> I watched Locky movies do things like this, where they're very creative with this ridiculous kill. It was beautiful. Yeah. The top half of the torso reaching for the bottom half of the torso, like, feebly while, they're, while they slowly stop moving. Just, mm, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, like, I hadn't seen something, like, that ridiculous since, like, Tucker Nail versus Evil. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely on that spectrum. Also, things to praise, uh, the design of the Antonio Graza, uh, you know, post being ruined by the sea for 40 years, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful set. Yeah, fantastic set. The acting is not quite on the same level. Think of a sci-fi original movie. Yeah, we have a few people who are... Known. Yeah. Isaiah Washington, I've seen him in things, and Carl Urban is here for some reason. Carl Urban's been in a lot. He's honestly a pretty good actor, mm-hmm. but here it looks like he just got back from a Pearl Jam concert and then walked onto the set. And they're like, eh, you'll do. And we are remiss to mention this, that Epps, our protagonist, I'd say, our final girl, uh, is uh, played by Juliana Margulies, who you might know from The Good Wife. She's kind of playing like the token tomboy tough girl archetype that you see in a lot of these sorts of things she's playing what if laura croft was your aunt yeah yeah she honestly just doesn't have much characterization most of these characters don't they're all kind of just one note yeah captain murphy has a bit because he's got this kind of mystique to him as, a, as an actor so it's, it's working. yeah i'm not sure what the actor's name is but he reads as like a budget version of william defoe or ian mcshane but unfortunately like uh santos and munder and dodge who are also characters in this i don't care about those people i don't believe in them mm-hmm. there's sort of there to be guys to die on this thing yeah it's interesting that honestly the most complex character that we have is probably greer who is our token black character. Thankfully, he does not die first, but he does die second. Mm-hmm. Uh, played by Isaiah Washington, who I remember him doing something shitty a while back, but I can't remember what. 
I think it was something to do with the hundred. So the less said about that, the better. Uh, yeah, and his whole thing is like, oh. I mean, we've been out to sea for six months already. I got the fiance waiting on me, remember? I mean, we're getting married in a month. Yeah, and like he, he's also trying to like do things by the book. He tries to uh, call into the Coast Guard after they find the thing, and Murphy like stops him. He's just really frustrated that this thing keeps getting more complicated and people are willing to cut corners. And it's interesting how he reacts to all that. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't think it works well, though, for what's going on once the ghosts start showing up, though. I don't... What's going on with this character before the ghosts and what happens to his character after the ghost, like, they just don't really match up well. Yeah, so he gets drunk because he's stressed about things. I think this is after Santos dies? Yes. Yeah. He's drunk, he's alone, he's, he's stressing, and he starts seeing this, like, the, this beautiful host of a party um, from the 60s, and he's seduced by Francesca, the singer. And he sort of wanders off and falls out of shit. I'm sorry. I love that scene so much. It's very dumb. Yeah, so the ghost, the, the ghost woman undresses, but we get full frontal nudity. Mm-hmm. All right. And she, like, lures him in, and she's standing over, like, an inconvenient hole. Like, it's like an elevator shaft or something. Something like that. And so he goes to, like, get his grope on, but she's a ghost, so his hands just go through. So there's this wonderful scene of this topless lady with hands coming out of her chest, flailing wildly for a second before he falls to his death. And it's just very silly. I love it. Mm-hmm. I wish the rest of the deaths were that good. They're really, like, The Wire and that are the only good ones. I think Munder, like, getting pulled into the the gear and just kind of getting chewed up is interesting. Um, is that the one where the pumps uh, just turn red with his blood? Yes. Yeah, okay, that, that was all right. That, that, was, that was fine. That was pretty good. Mm-hmm. All right, I guess some of the kills in this are fun. We did a whole horror bracket, but this is, like, the first time we've gotten to talk about something, like, super cheesy and gory like this. Yeah. There aren't that many movies set on boats. This did oddly well. We looked it up, it's kind of the only real, like, schlocky horror movie coming out around this time. Yeah, The Ring did come out the week before, but if you're not into that sort of horror, this is probably what you'd go see for, you know, your Halloween horror fix. Mm-hmm. I want to say The Ring was the first time that, like, J-horror remakes, like, became a thing, so people didn't really know what it was yet. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think The Ring predates The Grudge by a few years. Mm-hmm. And the Captain Murphy just, like... Gets put into the drunk tank, and then we later realize that it was full of water, and they were being hallucinated by the ghost, so he just drowns. I think the rest get blown up or whatever. Yeah, um... Dodge dies off screen. Yeah, Dodge dies off screen, um, and it just leaves, um, Epson Jack. Yep. And he, you know, gives his whole monologue about, like, what's going on, and then the the final battle ensues, and, you know, explosions. It's a very fun bit where where the good wife has figured out, like, that she needs to blow up this boat so that no one else can be, like, taken into, like, the, its evil ghost web, but he, like, knocks her away from the detonator, and she points a harpoon at him, and he's like, ah, you already tried to kill me, I can't die, haha, and she, like, fires at the trigger for the, for the bomb. It's very silly. I loved it. Mm-hmm. One thing I did not love about this, I hesitate to call it a flashback because it takes too long, but uh, at one point, the ghost of the young girl, Katie Harewood, is able to just kind of lay out everything that happened on the ship to reveal that Jack is the villain. Mm-hmm. And it's just this long sequence of oh, we're, we're going to poison all these guests at the party and we're going to, you know, uh, sabotage this line so it bisects through all these people and then we're going to kidnap Katie and forcibly hang her in a room and then we're going to put this woman on a f- giant meat hook. 
and it just takes too long. And this is a flashback to the 60s, but they're playing like new metal, mm-hmm. like it, like industrial rock sort yeah. of stuff over all of it. And it's so weird and dissonant. And there's no dialogue during anything. They're just like cutting to all these scenes. It's a real pity because one of the people, uh, Francesca, is like kind of in on some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she gets to be kind of central in this. And she was a singer. We could have had just like this beautiful Italian song happening over all of this that could have been like fun and dramatic and punchy, but it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Taking the soundtrack away from the creators and replacing it with a different one would have been just a, would have helped the movie by a whole star. Keeping the tone on this could have been really easy if you just really had like the right atmosphere because like the editing is fine the yeah. acting is fine yeah. the dialogue is yeah, but a little like, obvious on the nose but whatever I think another problem is like this movie is dumb and it doesn't know what genre it wants to be yeah it's a little too actiony to really be horror but it's a little bit too gory and not exciting enough to be an action movie there are echoes of what probably used to be a romance subplot between Epps and Jack. For some reason, it was in there. Um, also, um, Dodge has a crush on her out of nowhere, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it. They, they think she'd make a good wife down the line, but... <sighs> <laughs> this definitely smacks of having some rewrites or some studio meddling or something. I think I can imagine someone wanting this to be like a more dramatic, more tense, more mystery-focused thing. Mm-hmm. I was looking at it, like, why is the movie like this? And I looked up the director's other work, and... His only other directing credit is, uh, I think, just a year before this, and it's 13 Ghosts. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this makes perfect sense why this is the way it is, because this is like 13 Ghosts, but on a ship. 13 Ghosts on a dead man's chest. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Dead woman's chest. (laughs) (laughs) The evil devil figure is named Faramon, so, you know. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, I'm... Like, I really love the concept of the villain, like how he has to lure all these people out to this abandoned ship and, like, take more souls. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool concept, but I don't think it's executed very well here. Mm -hmm. I do like that we aren't specific about, like, what cosmology he's from. We never, like, hear anything about, like, hell or Hades or whatever. Yeah, it's just like, I need souls. Yeah, for, you know, management. I think a little mysticism could probably help this. I think the line that encapsulate what this movie is like watching through it, there's this one line where Epps is interacting with Katie and like... (laughs) I know you're thinking about that. Yeah. And she tries to give her a locket or or something and it just falls right through her hand and she just exclaims, Oh God, you really are a fucking ghost. God, so... So... (laughs) This is not a new thing that, like, kind of the one woman in the cast is kind of the one who who interacts with the ghost child because, like, the ghost child is kind of looking for the mother, as it were. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a staple of ghost narratives. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really into it. I don't like the, the thing where, like, women have to, like, be in the mother role, even to the dead. Epps is the wrong person for that. Yeah, she has, like, no motherly instincts at all, and that is honestly hilarious. Mm-hmm. There's also probably a cut of this movie that gets turned into a comedy. I could <laughs> like, see it pretty easily. Like, it's just this weird, schlocky mess, but I kind of love it because of that. I can't, I wouldn't be opposed to the idea of, like, Epps and Katie having, like, a road trip movie or something where, she like, the ghost wants her to solve the problem. She's like, no, I'm just after the gold. I don't care. Give me more gold, <laughs> child. I'm going to exploit your undead form for my benefits. Uh... One thing I will say that I really enjoy, at the end when Juliana Margulies has blown up the devil and she's like swimming up to the surface, all these souls are appearing around her and swimming up as well and you kind of have this beautiful shot where like the ghosts are swirling around the ship as it sinks and heading up towards dawn and it's 
genuinely beautiful. Like, it is mm. a, a lovely shot. A lot of times, horror movies will kind of, like, keep the ghosts very, like, not floating and glowy. Mm. And I, I liked this here. I like that we got, like, proper glowing ghosts. Yeah. I would have liked that scene more if it wasn't, like, immediately undercut by the stinger at the end setting up for, like, Jack's still alive and he's gonna move all the cursed gold under this boat. Yeah. That that doesn't work and isn't very good. But, yeah. What are you gonna do? I get it. This is sort of a, a horror movie thing where you can't just have a happy ending because people think that's not how horror movies are supposed to end. But honestly... Most horror movies that I like have a coherent ending where it's like, yeah, we, we beat the bad guy. Like, we won. Yeah, and you can have a happy ending and still have a sequel. Yeah. You can just have it be a false sense of security, or you can have a new thing that comes up. I mean, we clearly established in this movie that, that Jack is just a guy doing a job for a greater cosmic force, and also the ghosts are real and the, there are afterlives. Like... That's a lot to unpack. But sadly, Ghost Ship does not have a sequel. If you want to know what that might have been like, check the link in the description where friends of the podcast, uh, Mike Knoll, Madison Jones, and Kylie Neal, pitched some options, including more of Juliana Margulies and the Ghost of Chris Hemsworth. Oh, equalizers. I think I'm about ready to move into the end segment. How about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... I think it should be pretty clear that, that uh, Jaws is a stronger movie than Ghost Ship. Yeah. As much as I enjoyed watching Ghost Ship, it's it's not a good movie. But it is an excellent, like, watch with your bad movie bros and have a good time with. It's, yeah. It's great for that. That is exactly what you want. Yeah, like, this is a perfect movie to toss on, grab a beer, and laugh at. <laughs> there are definitely times when I'd be more in the mood for Ghost Ship than Jaws, just because Ghost Ship is just fun. It doesn't ask much of you. Yeah. Yeah. It probably should have asked more of itself. Yeah. Ghost Ship is not that much gorier than Jaws is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more direct with it, but yes. Jaws, because of its time period, because of the kids, you kind of expect it to be a little bit less, but no, it goes pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a literal explosion of blood at the climax. Yeah. Yeah. Next bit is going to be interesting. Who do we want to give the Ship of Theseus award to? Hmm. They're both pretty hecked up. Yeah, like... So we have the Antonio Granza, who just is sitting and getting rusted out and degraded over 40 years, and then gets blown up. Or we have the Orca, who, due to the single-minded bloodlust of its captain, is torn apart by repeated uh, attacks by the shark. Yeah. And then goes down. Okay, so the Ship of Theseus Award is named for the philosophical question of if you take apart a boat and replace many of the parts, is it still the same boat? Question. I think the ghost ship, while being rusted, is just is one explosion and all of it is kind of in the same spot, whereas... Uh, the orca is destroyed several times because it's getting chomped on, so I feel like it'd be harder to rebuild it. It mm. would be harder to have a integrity of boats with that. There is also the question of, like, the the gold then got transferred to the new ship and ghost ship, and, like, do we, we think that is, like, part of that sort of process? That's fair. We do, in fact, see the literal ship of Theseus principle in action as we transfer the ghost ship from the Antonio Grauza to the boats at the end. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess ship of Theseus award somehow goes to ghost ship. Even though it is, like, definitely more exploded. Yes. Was it ever even really there? <laughs> Visual aids give you, you know, give you quite a bit of an edge. Yeah, that's fair. This was a fun episode. This is a good episode. Honestly, this is probably a good two-parter. If you're just in the mood for, like, spending some time in the water, put on Jaws as your A movie and Ghost Ship as your B movie, and that is exactly what you want. Yeah, like, start with Jaws, and after you're kind of, like, out of it, you can go to Ghost Ship. It does not require that much... But thank you for joining us on this detour into uh, into the Bermuda Triangle, where we have two horror uh, boat movies. What's up next week? 
So next week we have Master and Commander, as well as uh, The Perfect Storm. Uh, we've left the Bermuda Triangle and we're headed straight to Daddy's Cove. Oh. <laughs> Uh, what I know about these movies is they're both uh, dad thrillers, so... I think Master and Commander is a little bit far outside of that, but I can definitely... I, I, I can definitely see it being in that gray, that gray area. That's fair. I'm, I'm a little biased because my dad, like, read all the Master and Commander books. <laughs> like, this, he is very literally thrilled by that. <laughs> That's very fair. But if you want to hear more about things that thrill our dads, uh, <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.